This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, I welcome Ben Ratner to the YVR Screen Scene Studio. Where do I even begin with Ben Ratner? He's a multiple award-winning actor, writer, director, producer, and teacher. He has more than 100 film and television credits to his name, including lead roles in feature films that have played at TIFF, VIF, Sundance, and Berlin. You've seen him somewhere. He's got that face that you just know. Maybe it was the kindness blockbuster film Wonder, or maybe it was in a recent episode arc on Travelers, where he acted opposite multiple award-winning actress and previous guest on the YVR Screen Scene podcast, Jennifer Spence, who just happens to be his wife. He just, she just happens to be her wife. I, I feel like I need to say that, mm-hmm. to state that. She is incredible. We'll talk about her later on. As a writer-director, Ben has helmed two award-winning, theatrically-released feature films, Down River and Moving Malcolm. There was also his recent short film, Ganji, a hard-hitting short drama that he wrote, starred in, and directed, and also featured another award-winning actor and veteran of the YVR Screen Scene podcast, Mr. Alex Ponovic. Ganji premiered at the 2016 Vancouver International Film Festival, was picked up for international sales by Network Ireland TV, and was bought by the CBC. Ben has also directed Robson Arms for CTV, created and developed three television series for Canadian networks, and currently has two more series and two feature films in development. Oh, and he is the recipient of the Actra UBCP John Giuliani Award for Outstanding Achievement, and he's currently working with multiple award-winning stunt legend Danny Virtue on a one-man stage show for Casey Wright. And he's a teacher, and he's worked with many of the multiple award-winning actors who've passed through the studio, and whose work has graced and is gracing televisions and movie screens and iPhone screens all over the planet. And he's a visual artist. He has a painting currently on display at Avance City at Robson and Denman downtown, and he's currently prepping for a show in 2020. Okay, so today we're going to talk about all of this work and specifically the work, capital T, capital W, we're going to attempt to piece together a portrait of a man who seemingly does it all. I don't know where we're going to go with all of this, but I'm excited to see what we touch on along the way. Ben Ratner, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you kindly. That was such a great intro, and and you must be uh, learning, learning from your friend Nicole. <laughs> So well delivered. Why, thank you. So you like my podcast voice. It's excellent. Marred only by my growling stomach, but we can <laughs> edit that out later. I, I don't keep the podcast voice for very long. Yeah. It's it's gone. It's gone. And the Nicole, you met Nicole Oliver, uh, award-winning actress and voice legend. Correct. All right. And that's it for my podcast voice. Ben, how did we get here? 
I, I want to kind of dive into your origin story. I, I know we were talking, we record in Kitsilano. You are from Kitsilano, we're in your stomping grounds. So how, like, what kind of a kid were you? Well, I was actually born in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, You're born in Connecticut. Connecticut, many, many years ago. <laughs> so you're American. Uh, dual citizen. Wow. Dual citizen. Uh, you know, I identify as Canadian. But and I, we are thankful yeah, for that. But I did live in in uh, Los Angeles between, I think, 97 and 2001 or so. So being a dual citizen was very handy. Yeah. And I love traveling to the States, especially New York, as much as I can. But yeah, my dad is from Brooklyn, New York, and my mom is from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Okay, that's, that is, okay, I want to know, how, how does somebody from Brooklyn meet somebody from Saskatchewan? Well, my dad was going to that fancy school, Yale, Oh. and uh, he wasn't uh, from a fancy family, but he was a smart guy and a hardworking guy, and he found himself doing, uh, I guess, his postgraduate stuff as a sociologist at Yale. Okay. And my mom was visiting her friend, uh, her Saskatoon friend, and they, you know, they hit it off, and next thing you know, they had to get married. And oh. that was my fault. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they got married and my dad took a teaching job at UBC. Okay. Uh, and as a young family with my mom and my dad and my brother, who was my half-brother, he came with my mom. Yeah. Uh, they moved to Vancouver and set up shop first up uh, closer to UBC around 10th and Sasmat. Yeah. And then in the house they still live in. Uh, which they purchased in, I think, 1969 for $25,000 or oh, something like that. that, I mean, okay, yeah, so listeners, because we have listeners all around the world, Vancouver's in the midst, midst of a ha housing crisis. And I can tell you, because I live in this area, to get a house for $25,000 seems like some kind of dream that you'd only have after you've smoked the really good stuff. I yeah. mean, I can't even... $25,000, so it must be worth millions now. The uh, plot of land at, at the very I, I least. Assume so. I assume so, who knows? But yeah, I, I, I like owe that much on my visa, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that's so true. Yeah. So what kind of a kid were you then? Well, I, I'm the same kind of person now as I was when I was a kid, you know? I, I was, uh, had a, a an internal life that was full of kind of wonder and joy and creativity, but also very questioning and very mm. sort of pensive. And I always felt like, what's really going on? Yeah. Like everybody's got this story and I'm watching it, but what's really going on? I always wanted to know the subtext, you yeah. know? And I, I never understood power structure and hierarchy. I never understood why is this teacher allowed to talk to me like that? are not only allowed to, but why do they feel the need to talk to me like that? You sound like uh, like you were like a, a, a grown-up in a child's body in some ways when you were a little kid, like well, going and talking to teachers and well, like questioning authority in that kind well, of like, way. Like you said, I mean, again, I'm the same now. It could have been a grown-up in a child's body, but now I'm often a child in a grown-up's body, you know? with It's just... Uh, what, what happened was I met a teacher... I had a teacher in, I think, grade four named Mr. Robbins, and it was the groovy 70s, and it was open learning, mm. and they started a new program at the school I went to, and this guy was... What's open learning? Just like well, self-directed? You can do means, what you want? It means you, you, by the time you go to high school, you've acquired a, a vast social sort of knowledge, but you don't know how to do math or science. 
right? You just don't really learn anything except for kind of creativity. You're you're pretty much going to be an artist or teach open learning. Human human fundamentals, you know? Um, People school, you know? Um, But what this guy did is we'd just sit in a circle and talk for hours. Wow. And that was so formative for me, you know? Like it was the first time, and and my parents were very communicative, and my mom was a social worker for so many years, and my dad being a sociology prof. You know, they were kind of Sounds like a lot of talking around the dinner table. You talk at school, and then you talk at the dinner table. I guess, I guess. Um, But the school talk was interesting because I I heard other people's stories, and I learned about what we all have in common and that was the first time I felt that pressure relieved of okay we're all telling the truth so now the pressure's off as soon as we're all authentic together it's like a a whole new world a whole new door opens when people just sit and feel safe telling the truth and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's sad and tragic and shocking and I still remember some of the specific stories and the sort of looks on kids faces uh, as they told their stories or as we listened. And that was hugely formative. I'm so grateful for Mr. Robbins. I believe he's passed passed away, but he was a huge influence on just the power of authenticity. Yeah, and you're sure that everybody was telling the truth in that in those moments? Or did people spin tales as well? That's an excellent question. And I, I never even, it never even occurred to me if they were spinning tales, they were good at it because yeah. I've got a good bullshit meter. Yeah. Even as a kid, you know? But yeah. you're right. Maybe they were. Maybe there was some exaggeration. And But I just think that once people start telling the truth and seeing the power of their truth and their authenticity, they don't feel the need to lie. Yeah. Because it's easier to tell the truth, it's easier to remember the truth. And it just feels better. So I think, you know, sort of encouraging people to be authentic negates the lie to a a large extent. Yeah. So when you were, I guess, nine years old, grade four, Mr. Robbins class, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I think that I always drew and, you know, drew and painted and told stories. And I found a notebook not that long ago from that time. Really? What a treasure that must be. Yeah. I I had written a story about a film crew coming to our class and uh, basically doing a reality series. And this was, you know, when I was like nine years old. And there was this story about this film crew because they thought we were so fascinating, all the characters, that they came and they did a story. And then we became famous and then things spiraled out of control. And our fame devoured us, and it devoured me in particular. And this is a couple decades before there were even reality shows. Yeah, I, it was. I, I there was way before that, and I'm not sure if the film Seven Up had been made yet. I, if it was, I probably wasn't aware of it. But Seven Up was, you know, documenting the lives of kids from right. ages seven to fourteen yeah, yeah. to twenty-one, etc. But yeah, so seeing that was quite quite interesting. I saw that, you know, sort of uh, foresaw the future in a, in a way. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did that kind of thing, drawing and painting. I played with puppets and stuff. I was kind of like, as I am now, more of an introvert. Yeah. So I found it kind of safe to hide behind a puppet or a stuffed animal. I don't think I was a real uh, boy boy. I didn't play with cars and trucks and do all that stuff. I was more into, you know, I remember I had a, a friend uh, and we were playing Barbies together when we were really little kids. And, yeah. And um, I was holding this Barbie and, and making her fly because she had on this sparkly, uh, sparkly sort of dress, you know, a 60s type dress, as I recall. And I was going, whoosh, 
making the Barbie fly and her mother came and snatched it out of my hand and said, boys don't play with Barbies. Oh. So that stuck with me. Yeah. Not as trauma, just as curiosity. It's yeah. like, well, why not? Yeah. What, what's, what's the problem there, you know? Yeah. So there was that part of me uh, being, you know, I guess a sensitive kid. And um, How did know, other kids relate to you, though? I mean, I can imagine that in the in a safer space, like, or I would imagine that the open learning situation mm-hmm. is a safer space, you know? But if you're just walking around looking for truth and being artistic and stuff around Kit Solano, like, did you <laughs> <laughs> like, encounter a lot of... <laughs> well, no, I mean, I was also a scrappy kid. And yeah. I think, you know, I mean, we remember the truth as we choose to at... Uh, certain times you know right now talking to you and looking into your eyes you kind of got soft eyes so I'm kind of feeling soft yeah you know what I mean (laughs) but I can also remember uh, my first fight because I was always the smallest kid so I I, it was without question I was going to assert myself and and although I was introverted I wasn't meek yeah and I remember uh a seminal moment with this kid who lived across the street named Brian and he was a Brian br- Brian <laughs> and he was a brash kid yeah kind of you know a louder kid and a bossy kid and I remember being afraid to go to the park and the park was about two blocks away or a block away of course as a little kid in those days you could go on these adventures yourself yeah <laughs> and I remember one day going I'm tired of being afraid of Brian. I think I was five or six. I'm just tired of being afraid of this kid. I'm not going to do it anymore. I grabbed my little plastic baseball bat. And I remember walking up the hill and then down the little hill to go to the park. And I'm going to kick Brian's ass today. That's it. No more. So at the park. That's the Brooklyn in you. Well, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) You're right. Get the bat. Uh, So we got to the park. I didn't need the bat. And I got Brian down and I gave him a few smacks and he started crying. And... And I thought I had, you know, triumphed. And I thought this was a, a, a heroic moment. Mm. And then all the girls hated me. Oh. All the little girls, like I was bad and they were crying. They were upset because they watched this kid get beat up. Yeah. And then I said, okay, uh, life is not black and white, is it? Yeah. You know, like in order for me to feel heroic, I had to make that kid feel uh, defeated and p- powerless so that was a big lesson and it's one that's taken me many many years to figure out yeah you know but yeah these are uh you know so uh, there was a scrapper in me yeah Um, things really changed with boxing when i was around 11. I, which I was just about to kind of lead us into the boxing question because I I remember one of the visuals that I mean, so I've interviewed you through the years for various things. And one of the conversations we had was about Ganji, that the short film that is about an ex-boxer who is feeling uh, the, I don't want to give spoilers because I know people can watch it, but you know, people could, like he, he is uh, affected physically uh, in his uh, older middle years uh, as a a result of the, of many of the hits he took to the head. Dementia pugilistic. Yeah. And one of the images that I remember you describing was you getting on the bus, leaving Kitsilano and going like down, far out of Kitsilano Mm -hmm. downtown to, to, uh, was it the community center? Hastings Community yeah. Center across from the PNE. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, one thing with Ganji is that film for me at the time I made it was a tribute to the great Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And it was very personal film for me when I made it because I've been in this business in one form or another since I was like 16 years old is when I started playing music. And we I haven't even touched well, on music well, yet. But, you know, Ugh. it's this journey, right, of like starting at 16. When I was 16, our band was already playing in the Commodore yeah. ballroom. 
And so hustling, right? Just hustling and trying to get known, trying to get seen, trying to get heard. And then that led to other things. After sort of music, I was, uh, God, what was I, was, I was, well, before music was boxing, hustling, trying to get ahead as a boxer, trying to get ahead as a musician, trying to get ahead after that as a stand-up comedian and then getting into acting. So it looks over, it's like 30 or 40 years of hustling. Yeah. I got tired and um, I felt like, I felt like Ganji. You know, mm. I felt like, man, I, I, I've just been beaten up a lot and I got to keep going here. I got to I got to find a way to reinvent myself and keep going. Reinvent yourself for other people or reinvent no. yourself for how you see yourself and the kind of work that you exactly. do. Exactly. Reinvent myself on my own terms. Yeah. Uh, not as a public figure, because I don't think, you know, I'm not in that sort of position. Um, and. I also, at, at the age I was at and the time I was at in my life, I thought, like, who are my real friends? Yeah. You know, who can I really depend on? And who really cares? Who really loves me? You know, and it's not to wallow in despair. It's just life changes. You know, you got to, the seasons change. And it was a, a changing season. Uh, but making Ganji was a way of me saying to myself, I still got it. I'm going to go deep as an actor. I, I can't define myself by how many credits I have on IMDb. Yeah. Or, you know, how big my trailer is or how many followers I have. That stuff just is absolutely insignificant to me. What matters to me is is the depth of my work and the and the power of the message and how hard I work and how it affects other people. If it's 10 people or a thousand or a million, it's just yeah. what I do. So that's what Gangji was about, you know, finding finding my feet, getting back on my feet. And I got to make it with three fantastic actors who were all boxers, Alex yeah. and, and Donnie and Zach, who were friends. And so, you know, it was kind of a, a selfish film in a way. And I got a great producer, Tony Pantages, behind it. Oh, I love Tony. Yeah, he's such an enthusiast, <laughs> right? Yeah. He's just, he's, he's just a genuinely uh, uh, enthusiastic lover of life and, and a great drum beater, yeah. you know? So I, I selfishly surrounded myself with all these guys I knew loved me and were behind me and told a story about a guy who asked to receive that message from his friends. Yeah. You know? And uh, that was kind of the beginning of another another chapter for me. Yeah. But to go back to your question about um, where that came from, uh, Alex and I, and I know he talked about this with you yeah. when, when you interviewed him, uh, in, what was it? 2008 or 9 we Muhammad Ali was in Vancouver doing a screening of uh, a film called Facing Ali that Facing a Ali of, yeah yeah and a friend of mine Pete McCormick directed it me and Pete go back and, uh, and he's a, a wonderful documentary filmmaker Pete's a special guy yeah. he's one of the he's got a, a, a massive brain and a massive heart and, a, and an incredible curiosity and he tells difficult stories uh, mm -hmm. with incredible compassion as well I know he did one a few years ago about the um, I think think the, uh, the John man yeah one the was John really man powerful. I think it was called like spirit unforgettable and it was yeah. about his his losing his sense of self yeah. and his place in the world and coming to terms with a new reality which is it, I mean it touched a lot of people yeah, so oh, for sure Pete's yeah. not uh, uh, a light and fluffy guy although yeah. he has a great sense of humor so Facing Ali was, yeah. was very much like so, that yeah so he did Facing Ali and um, I had another friend who was involved in the promotion of the the film so when I heard about Ali coming to town you know there are some things in our lives that seem destined and you just go after and you almost will things to happen right yeah. and i you know i remember being a very young kid it must have been 1971 because that was the year that muhammad ali fought joe fraser the first time yeah 
And uh, I hope I got that right for the Ali fans. It was either 70 or 71 Madison Square Garden perhaps February 25th, if I recall correctly. But but I might be way (laughs) off there. It's just how I remember it. But I'm looking at my uncle's, had a big stack of Sports Illustrateds. And it was Ali and Fraser. And I was flipping through those those Sports Illustrated magazines. And Ali was wearing the red velvet trunks, the white shoes with the red tassels. And Fraser was wearing these sort of paisley uh, satin or silk uh, green and sort of yellow paisley trunks and these images were so powerful and so arresting and so startling and so epic and I remember looking at those images and just being really affected I didn't know why I didn't really understand boxing or know what boxing was but these images just struck me uh, these it wasn't even about the violence of it it was about there was some certain kind of beauty there and yeah. some sort of poetry to these shots and I could you saw truth there but it was were an on authenticity I, sh- I sure yeah. did and then not long after that I remember having a nightmare that Muhammad Ali beat up my dad Whoa. and I remember Ali uh, uh, well there's a lot dream. to unpack there Ben yeah, uh, there all, <laughs> well, you know therapy every two weeks for yeah. me you know, oh, ongoing, ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> but Ali kicked my dad's ass in the hallway of our house and there were napkins from the kitchen table that we always had and I remember we were putting these napkins on my dad's face yeah. to stop the bleeding. And so I hated Ali after that dream. I thought he was so bad. Somehow my uncle turned me on to how great he was. Yeah. And I began to reimagine and, and sort of re-see Ali for the man he was. And he, he, I connected with the guy. I connected with his sense of humor and his poetry. So I decided, okay, I, I think I need to be a boxer. I need to do something extraordinary. And it's also being, you know, the little guy always the smallest guy in the class. You gotta do something to stand out. Yeah. So that began the, the journey of boxing. And I guess I had a lot of rage in me that, mm. um, you know, just rage over sort of, um, you know, who knows if my, my parents listen to this podcast, you know, they won't like this, but uh, what can you do? You know, there was just family stuff that was um, needed to get out. Yeah. You know, like all families, right? You know, like just things affect you in ways you don't understand as a kid. So I guess there was some rage in there, although I was from a very loving home and my parents were together and very kind to me. There's stuff going on. And uh, I guess it was boiling up inside and boxing was an outlet for it. Yeah. Um, so, so. Oh, back to. Do you want yeah, me to finish so, the Yeah, no. Thing, so or? you. I mean. From what I understand, yeah. it was that uh, you and Alex volunteered or were volunteered we to... Insisted. You insisted. We you insisted. demanded. Or you begged, please, 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 yeah. please. I, I, we we want to meet Muhammad right. Ali. We want to work with Muhammad Ali. Right. So tell me about that, so, the screening. So our friend, our, our friend Rory Richards, who was promoting this event, uh, got us jobs, in quotes, at the event in the photo room with Ali and his entourage, his very small entourage. Yeah. And our job was, my job was to, as as these primarily rich white businessmen, primarily, got their photos taken with Ali, to sort of keep the lineup moving. Yeah. Because Ali, at this point in his life, the Parkinson's was, was in there, was there very yeah. deep. And he wasn't talking, you know, perhaps he could speak a little bit, but he was choosing not to. Yeah. And he was shaky. And he was very, very vulnerable. So sometimes, you know, these guys like me were so excited to meet Ali. 
they just start talking. I remember when you fought George Chavalo, and you just have to go, thank you, sir. We do have a long lineup if we can just, right, move yeah. along. So that was my job. What an honor. And Alex's job was security. And so Alex, you know, being a uh, gentle giant is a perfect security because mm-hmm. he's not, he's a kind, in, uh, you know, very present, but not putting out a bad vibe. Yeah. You know, putting but out. But don't a, mess with him. Don't mess with him. We don't want to <laughs> do that. I slapped him once when we were rehearsing a scene. We were doing a scene together from Of Mice and Men, of course. And uh, I gave him a slap and his eyes changed. And I just watched his eyes change. And I thought, okay, noted. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yes. But, you know, that's one thing about acting. It empowers you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. I thought, yeah. hey, I'm George, you're Lenny, you're getting a smack. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so so we had these jobs. My first uh, task, I was told Ali likes movie popcorn and uh, Coca-Cola and iced tea. So I was sent out to get that. So I was like Ali's cornerman, right? Yeah. I had to get the supplies for the corner. And you know me enough to know I'm pretty laid back and I'm not really an extrovert. I was so excited <laughs> that I just ran from the theater at Hastings in Maine. Uh, you know, what's, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the I theater. I think it, 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 The Imperial. The Imperial. Yeah. Beautiful theater in a, in a uh, surprisingly uh, difficult location. Yeah. Um, I ran to Tinseltown. And, to, and, and just running, just I ran into Tinseltown. Hi, I need some popcorn. I need, I need, this popcorn's for Muhammad Ali, you know. This is for Muhammad Ali. And then I got Coke and, and uh, iced tea at the little store. This and is they, for Muhammad Ali. They this must is. have thought that you were on mm. something. Well, you know what? I, I was so, the, the young lady <laughs> at the movie theater um, didn't, kind of knew who Muhammad Ali was. The guy at the little store, he, you know, we're talking about authenticity. He said he could tell this is for real. This guy, yeah. he was excited too. He's yeah. going, really? Where's Muhammad <laughs> Ali? Where is he? Where is he? You know what I mean? So I My bring, dad was working in the store that day? What? Yeah, exactly. It was so exciting. So we, so I ran this stuff back, got it all ready. Yeah. Uh, and then we waited and then, you know, you could sense as the car approached, you could feel it. You could just feel it from... Uh, I can't have s- silence during a podcast, but as you can see, it 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 gets me. Uh, it really gets me going. Yeah. Because can, can I ask though? Mm-hmm. Were you were you uh, apprehensive to come face to face with the greatest in this way? Not just you know, he, not just because he's th- considered the greatest athlete of all time, mm-hmm. um, but also because of where he was positioned in the story of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, coming face to face with somebody who has that kind of importance, I would imagine, would be a little bit terrifying because there is the possibility of being disappointed in some way as well i think that's an excellent question in this case it was all meant to be in my mind and it was all just unfolding as it needed to unfold you know uh he walked in uh surrounded by just he had his wife and his nurse who i believe was his sister-in-law and one other guy from the ali foundation and as I recall, they came in a limo, but we, we didn't see the limo pull up. We just, as they walked in, and this excitement hit like like clouds bursting yeah. and a downpour. The excitement you felt was just like <laughs> thunder and lightning, rain, and it was raining alley. <laughs> and he walked in, and he kind of, you know, he kind of shuffles, staggers, and there's a sense of kind of urgency and drama in the way he car- was carrying himself at that time. Yeah. Because the stakes are so high. Um, 
and he comes in and and I remember Alex and I looking at each other and Al across the room and Alex shook his head at me like this is not happening and I remember I nodded my head at him like this is happening <laughs> right this is going down Ali comes in we go to the sort of area where the photos are going to happen and he's, he's shaken and it's getting worse you know you could tell that he was in some distress yeah uh, and you know one of the amazing things about Ali and people like Ali and Richard Pryor who were some of the most gifted charismatic speakers our modern world has ever known they had that gift taken away but yeah. they didn't hide in the shadows they still presented themselves in the public and let people see their truth right yeah. so Ali comes in he sits down in this chair but his legs don't quite reach the ground I guess because of the tension in the muscles with the Parkinson's and everything yeah so I found myself finding a little stool or a little box and putting it under his feet and I'm thinking as I'm doing it two things I'm thinking this is what this man needs right now and I'm here for him and I'm thinking like I'm in Ali's corner I'm Angelo Dundee right now like yeah. I'm taking care of Ali I'm, I got his back I'm covering him uh, very excited give him the coke and the iced tea we have that I still have the glass he drank his coke out of oh, and I kind of <laughs> slipped that in my you know inside pocket yeah. and um, so there's this drama and this urgency and his wife is uh, protective and cautious yeah. with everyone and gradually we want Alex and I won her trust and she softened a lot Ali wasn't talking and people were banging off all these photos and finally uh, the room cleared and there was just a moment where it was just me and Ali you know and the photographer and I thought okay now so I went up to him I had a lot of things I could have said I wanted to say uh, I looked at him and I put my hand out and his hand came up and it's, you know, that's the hand changed the world, right? Yeah. And changed the world. It really did. It changed the world as we know it yeah. in sports and entertainment and politics and sociology, humanity and that hand. And your up. world too, though, like not just the oh, whole yeah. world, but also, I mean, your whole world yeah. as well. He was a, a, a beacon for me, you know, a shining light that I could sort of look to. Yeah. So I, I reached out for his hand. He wrapped that big hand around my hand, that hand that, you know, knocked out Sonny Liston and beat Joe Fraser and knocked out George Foreman and came back and beat Leon Spinks to win the title for the third time. And I wanted to say all these things, and all I could say is, I go, I love you. Wow. I go, I love you. I said it twice, because I, I said it the first time, and then I said, yep, I'm going to say it again, because this is what I'm saying. And, you know, he wasn't speaking, but we were kind of shaking hands, and, and Ali's handler, the guy from the Ali Foundation, is in the background witnessing this, and he goes, he loves you too, right? Now there's tears flowing, right? A very <laughs> pow powerful moment, a very yeah. Ali moment, because that's... That's how Ali affects people, right? Yeah. Especially in, like, there was so much delight surrounding that man in his prime and when he was healthy. Later in his life, there's just deep, deep, profound gratitude and um, sensitivity. And, you know, we don't want to say tragedy. Like his nurse said, don't feel sorry for him. He's happy. He's doing what he wants to do, right? But very, very profound. 
And, you know, the night continued from there. We watched the movie sitting right directly behind Ali and watched him eat that popcorn I got him. There's yeah! popcorn, popcorn <laughs> all over the floor, yeah. all over his lap. He didn't care. And his eyes were bright and shining as yeah. he watched the movie. Pete, the director, was sitting right beside him. An amazing, life-changing night. And, you know, I've talked about it in interviews before, and I'll never, if anybody wants to hear it, I'll talk about it. Because <laughs> it was uh, not only just, you know, an amazing delight and uh you know unforgettable thing but it just shows how we're no, none of us are as separated as we feel we are as we think we are yeah. we see you know you grow up and go that's muhammad ali and he lives in that universe and i live in this universe but then you see when things like this happen we're all connected yeah. and and anything is possible yeah would you say then that ganji because of what was driving it was more important to you than your other films or like what weight do you do you give it because i also i mean i know down river mm. was you know it, i mean the the inspiration behind that was the passing of your your dear friend babs chula you know like where where does this sit with you for you mm -hmm. with it or is it more like just representative of where you are at a different time in your in your life. Yeah. Again, it's another great question. And I try why, to have at least well, one. Well, no, Possibly the reason two. I think that's a great question <laughs> is because it, it's one of the things about doing a long form interview is it really makes the uh, interviewee think, where am I in my life and what am I doing? Yeah. Because if we're just doing little sound bites on a red carpet, which I don't really do these days, I guess I'll do it again if I have a uh, film out there that requires that yeah but it's not where i live it's not what turns me on oh gosh ben i hate conducting interviews on the red carpet uh mostly because i would rather have a 20 to 45 minute conversation i will do mm -hmm. it and but i have to be like okay i'm gonna ask one question then i gotta move them along yeah, but it's, it's you know it's, i like to be a familiar face too to the people that i know but i i mean i clearly i love this form yeah, it's well. a great form. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's also different than print, right? Because yeah. in print, uh, you know, there's that that transition between what happened in the interview and, and what it looks like when it comes out on the page. Oh, but yeah. this is all just us, and even if you edit. But anyway, so I like that question because it makes me think and it makes me understand what I'm doing a bit more. And to answer that question, um, it was incredibly important for the reasons that we talked about earlier about what it meant to me yeah. in terms of figuring out where I was at as a creator or performer uh, and where I was at with my friendships and the people close to me. And now that we're into it, of course, because of Ali. Now, when we made the film, Ali was still alive. Yeah. We shot the film while he was alive. While we were in post, getting very close to finishing the film, he died. Yeah. So that made it even more important. Yeah. Um, and I will add, the, f what, the photo yeah. that you took with Ali appears in the film. That's right. There was a photo of, of just me and Ali, and there's also a photo of Alex and I on either side of Ali. Yeah. And we structured the film around that these characters, when they were younger and still boxing, they met Ali. Um, it worked, and it also was a bit, I think, confusing to people because I think people thought it was a phony photo. Hmm. They didn't imagine watching the film that these guys actually took a picture with Ali. How could they, right? How yeah. could people know that, oh, the actual actors actually met Ali and now they're pretending that... Well, that's why all the press around the film is important because right. that is, I mean, that's something that we definitely spoke about. Absolutely. Uh, at, the, at the time. Yeah. 
Um, I, I do want to talk a bit about, and I knew that we were going to be going all over the place today. We, I mean, you, you mentioned stand-up, you mentioned art, you, like, there's so much to talk about. But I, I did mention Downriver, which I think of so, of, you know, you don't appear in Downriver, mm-hmm. but, but you, you wrote it and you directed it. And it is still one of, I think, my favorite films that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, the performances in it, uh, you know, to see Colleen Renison, to see Jennifer Spence. Oh, my God, to see Brian Markinson, you know, doing mm-hmm. his like vile gallery yeah. thing. I mean, it was d- deeply, uh, Helen Shaver, deeply emotional mm-hmm. uh, and um and a celebration of women, yeah, you know, as and, well. And so I'm yeah. interested where you were in your life when you made Down River. Well, uh, the great, the late great Babs Chula had passed away uh, a couple of years earlier after a, a, a long cancer situation. And a um, couple of things were going on. You know, it was time to make another film. And yeah, I do find it, Uh, impossible to make films unless I'm deeply invested I've never been like I'm not really a movie buff I'm not like a movie fascinated with the history of movies I'm just not kind of like a movie nerd I like telling stories so you make a movie when you have something to say I do and uh, it takes a lot to get there you know my first film uh, moving Malcolm was 2003 and that film was essentially my attempt at uh, giving a gift to my parents to tell them how much you know the family meant Uh, and it was also a tribute to a girlfriend's dad who passed away so Mm. I seem to have you know both features I've made have been based on uh, an older mentor who leaves us so that's a recurring hmm. theme for me for some reason. I mean, reason. you would, I, I would even put Ganji in that category yeah, almost, as well. Right? As, uh, because he almost, he almost exits that film, but is saved by his friends. But um, well, I mean, Muhammad Ali. Being oh, that's a mentor, right. Of course. See, know? see, you know, we're in therapy now, and it's so, <laughs> and I didn't even have to pay you two hundred bucks. Uh, you haven't received my invoice oh, yet. Okay. <laughs> um, you're right. You're up. Of course, you're right. Of course, you are. Um, so yes, Babs. Uh, Babs was uh, a dearly beloved mentor, friend, actor, uh, storyteller, all-around mensch, uh, hmm. friend, friend to everyone she met. She's the person, one of them, I had these great role models as a, as a young actor, uh, two of them being Babs Chula and Jay Brazo, and they taught me something without you know telling me this, but I just observed it. They treated everyone the same. Yeah. If it was a production assistant or executive producer, they were respectful. Are in Bab's case, you know, irreverent to whomever they were dealing with. Yeah. And that was a great lesson, you know, not to suck up to people and not to climb and not to try to, you know, jump on someone's back to get across the river. Just treat everyone as equals. So Bab's taught me a lot, and she was a dear, dear friend to me and an entire community. There were, you know, hundreds of us who used to gather at her apartment. Uh, the last one was at the Manhattan Building on Robson Street. Mm. And, you know, you work on an audition with her. She brings you, uh, you know, she gives you a bowl of soup. You smoke a joint. You talk about life. You hear about one of her five husbands' stories. <laughs> uh, you hear about what's going on with her kids. And, you know, she. we had a connection, too, because we were both, like, our heritage being Jews from the East Coast, the United States. Um, there was something, you know, it's kind of hard to find around here, that sort of kindred 
spirit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Babs got cancer and died, and it was brutal and horrible. And I, I learned a lot. I tried. I thought I could save her. You know, like I thought, well, if we just raise enough money, and we get enough people behind it, you know, she'll be okay. She'll be okay. We can do this. And you know, she wasn't. You can't always get what you want yeah and uh so it became clear to me that i wanted to tell a story not only about babs and the kind of person she was but as an acting teacher you know i've been doing it for over 25 years now and at that time i still had a lot invested i was constantly amazed by the the actresses Mm. uh, the female actors and what they had to overcome because the way the business treats them yeah. You know, it's just the reality. I mean, it's getting perhaps better now, but you we're know, talking the, about sexual harassment. We're talking about aging in front of the camera. We're talking about the pressures of being a parent and all of the I mean, that like, is that what you're talking? about? Absolutely. And things? the lack of opportunities at that time, there were just less roles, fewer leading roles for yeah. women, certainly fewer interesting roles for women. And I just thought, OK, I want to tell a story about Babs and I want to tell a story about my interaction with her. But through the characters of these three women and Jennifer Spence who's my wife played Aki who was a painter so I felt I could write about painting or the desire to be a painter and we used my actual paintings actual paintings as her paintings in the film so I felt I can tell that story and Colleen Renison is I've known her since she was you know teenager incredible talent just blessed with a voice that that you know like it sings from her gut the best Amazing. The best. And so I had a, a long history in the music business before I got into acting yeah. as a musician or an, an, an attempting to be an, a masquerading mu- musician hmm. in some ways. But, you know, we found a certain level of success that petered out quickly. But, you know, we ended up when I was a kid, 19 years old, playing the Pacific Coliseum, opening for Brian Adams in front of 16,000 people when we had only played like five gigs together as a band. So I had that background, you know, I understood the music business. And uh, Gabe Gabrielle Miller, Miller, who's just one of my favorites. I just I just love her work. She's just so true and so real and so connected in her work. Her character told the story of a of the difficulties in an actor in, in an actor trying to have a family. Yeah. And trying to make a family and, and have a kid when work calls you away and there's sort of no stability. And that was something I'd experienced, you know, because my wife and I want to make a family but we also you know for an actor sometimes it's hard to make that decision because you're kind of in your prime and you want to try to achieve goals and which one do you pick and how do you do both so they were all stories I wanted to tell and I told them with these great actors and I just listened to what they had to say yeah and uh you know well then you had Helen's uh, Helen Shaver this was the next thing so once I knew these three uh, and and that I could write for them. Yeah. It's like who's going to play Babs? Mm. Like anybody who knows Babs goes, how the how do you fill those shoes, right? Yeah. So I'd seen Helen. Uh, I was aware of her work as a director and an actor, but I saw her in a little film, a little indie, that Martin Cummins made. I think it was called All Fall Down, if I'm r- recalling. And she played like a sort of a street crack hooker, uh, downtown East Side. Yeah. And she was great. And I know the film had no budget, and so she must have done it for free. Yeah. And she was fantastic, and I thought, wow, she is great. Uh, I knew people who knew her. We got connected. We talked. The long seduction process started of sending early drafts of the script and hearing her ideas. 
Finally, she agreed to do it, and she came and she knocked it out of the park. She gave everything she had. Everybody worked for a hundred bucks a day. We had no money. We made that film for sixty thousand dollars. Sixty thousand bucks. Telefilm gave us seventy-five to finish it, and it played in theaters in Canada for three weeks. You know. Yeah. So I remember a, it was at Fifth Avenue. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I did see it a couple of times, oh, that's and it great. was like Appreciate a. It. it was a. It was a full house the well, times that I was there. We hustled, you know. I mean, it wasn't always a full house, but I'm, I'm glad to hear you got to see it with a full house. But we were out there handing out uh, promotional downriver pens and yeah. just like talking people into the theater. Please come see this film. Because why would they? If, they yeah. if they're not reading the newspaper articles or whatever that's out that day, it's, go it's made, it's forgotten. Nobody's going to go. They look at the poster. I don't know what that is. Yeah. You know? So you have to talk it up. So, yeah, we got people in and it went well. <sighs> I was, I'm, I'm sighing heavily because it just the, the fact that I'm going to go off on my little political thing that I do every once in a while when I get upset. But the, the, one of the things that I love about Downriver, the fact that it is set in the city, the fact that it's it's all of these incredible thespians at the top of their game. I'm thinking also like Ali Liebert as well. I mean, she just turns in an incredible performance and mm -hmm. that, you know, like that's what I, I love about Canadian film and specifically film that is shot here is that it's it's they are local stories they are stories that are created by people who live in this community they're holding up a beard to the multitude of experiences we have here and the fact that we we putting myself in that we because i am part of the whole machinery have to work so damn hard to convince convince people to mm -hmm. go to fifth avenue to see a film that is w will actually heighten their experience of living here when we don't have to work hard at all they're just flocking to see the films that are shot here but that are set in other cities and right. have lots of vi visual effects it just boggles my mind and i don't feel like it's getting any better yeah i mean that showbiz you know it's <laughs> like it's, it's not it's not easy for anybody right it's ridiculous it's well it's easy. easier for the american service productions that um, come up here i think it's i think it's all relative right i i agree with what you're saying and it is of course frustrating i think for me <laughs> if a movie is great and you have a little luck and a little timing, it'll get seen. Yeah. You know, it has to be great. No, like people aren't going to flock to a movie because it was made in Vancouver. Yeah. You know, it has to be great. And I think, you know, I, I'm not one to blow my own horn. Do it. You're allowed um, here. <laughs> I know that uh, Downriver holds up. It you does. know, my first film, you know, was the first thing I did. And I wouldn't say that film really holds up. It has some sweet moments and it's kind of got a heart to it. Downriver holds up. If we had, if a couple of things had zigged instead of zagged, uh, if we had gotten into a certain festival, if we had a connection here or there, who knows? That movie could have had a U.S. theatrical release and right. really done something. But somebody else was in the right place at the right time or somebody else's film got chosen somewhere, you know? You, you take the good with the bad and, yeah. and you can't blame anybody. I'm really trying to get to that place. I was furious when Downriver didn't get into TIFF. Yeah. I was just furious because that could have been a real game changer. And, you know, I blame them. Um, they missed I, the opportunity. I, yeah. I, but I don't think I do that now. You know, I think I'm a little bit older and wiser. And, and it's just that those feelings, that disappointment and that heartbreak for a filmmaker is real. But guess what there's a lot of films out there yeah there's well, a lot of good films and and you don't always get to be the chosen one just because you think your film is wonderful you yeah. know it's, it's up to there's a lot of determining factors there so what, I, what i'm saying to answer what you said which i agree with is you need a great film you need luck and yeah. you need 
you know, timing, which is part of luck. I think that a film with all these female leads, and there was also, you know, great male leads in the film, maybe now people would pay a little more attention to it, even a year later after we released it. People go, no, we have to, you know, because now everybody's really paying attention to this issue of too many male-dominated films. I don't know. Um, Looking back now, I just try to be grateful for what did happen with the film and just knowing it's out there, you know? Is it on iTunes? It is on iTunes right. in the in US and in Canada. Okay, great. And um, I guess that's, yeah, that's where people would see it. Yeah, so we'll include uh, a link to the iTunes page uh, on our website. And actually, it did come up uh, in another episode. We had, uh, you know, this like indie filmmaker, Joel McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I, I kind of put him through this like, what's your favorite web series? What's your favorite TV show? What's your favorite, you know, locally shot film? And he had Downriver as his favorite oh, locally sweet. shot I, film. So you're touching a lot of people we with were, it. We were at uh, the Soho Film Festival in New York, and he had a film there. And we had Down River there. We had, we ended up winning uh, Best World Feature. Yeah. So that was a big thrill to win an award at a little festival in New York. But I remember Joel and his friends were sitting behind us. And at the end of Down River, I, I didn't know them. We hadn't met. But I remember hearing a young voice go, oh, that was so good. <laughs> and it just felt great, you know? Yes. To touch an audience member. So, yeah, it takes a lot for me to build up the fortitude and the desire to make a film and I have a couple of new projects uh, that I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to find my way into caring enough t- to go through the punishment to yeah. get them done, right? Yeah, it, it is quite a, an emotionally engrossing process. Eh? I remember Jen's, uh, Jennifer Spence, your wife, there's my Nicole Oliver voice again, but because she was a producer on, uh, on the film as well, and she was describing that like during filming there was a night where you got up in the middle of the night and you like were just wandering around and I you was sleep directing yeah you were sleep directing I was so exhausted <laughs> and just out of it that I was in the kitchen frantic when she t- so she tells me I was frantically cleaning up the connection and I'm sorry I apologize for this visual uh, <laughs> naked in the kitchen cleaning frantically and Jen came in the kitchen to see what I was doing at like three in the morning said what are you doing sweetie what are you doing I said you just got to get in your wetsuit we're, t- we're shooting <laughs> we're shooting the wet get in your wetsuit the whole crew's waiting she's going we're not shooting we're done we're not shooting and gradually I kind of you know found my footing and realized that I was safe yeah. <laughs> the clock wasn't ticking anymore because the ticking clock of making films is hard on the system yeah were you doing a good job cleaning uh, I'm pretty pretty tidy guy. Yeah, yeah. even when yeah. you're you're naked and asleep in the as kitchen. Far, as far as I know, I make a mess, but I clean it up. Um, we need to take a break because we have yeah. sponsors that we need to acknowledge. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, I mean, there's so much to talk about. Uh, I, I don't know what we're going to. I, I want to talk about stand up, mm-hmm. which is something that you kind of you you mentioned. You threw it out there very quickly, and then you ran off from it. But I know. Mm-hmm that you got back up in front of a, an audience recently. So I want to talk about uh, the, the experience okay. of that. And also, I want to talk about, uh, about Haven Studio. Love to. And about Ben Ratner, teacher. Okay. All right. How's that for a cliffhanger? I love it. All right. We'll be right back. This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. 
These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. So you recently headed to a place that I personally don't normally associate Ben Ratner, thespian and director and writer and teacher with, the stand-up comedy realm. Uh, we had Peter Kalamis in here recently, and I associate him with that realm, but not necessarily you. So tell me about your your relationship with stand-up and, and what motivated you to get back up in front of that crowd recently. Well, I, I started doing stand-up when I was probably 23 years old, before I started acting. Uh, I started acting... In 23 a, seems really young, by the way. Well, they're pretty young out there. You yeah? Know, if you go to one of these shows and you watch the people who are getting up, who are starting, they're young. Wow. You I guess know. I just associate stand-ups as being people who've lived, like, life, and they get up and they make observations about life. Like, that's, like, oh, they've lived. Ha-ha. You yeah, know? you're right, but they have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> I guess so. So you get a lot of 23-year-olds uh, talking about smoking weed and watching TV and jerking off, right? That's a very, seems to be what the, the young dudes are talking about. Yeah. Forgive my uh, um, uh, distasteful uh transmission of the truth there yeah. that's what they're talking about <laughs> distasteful uh, transmission of the truth maybe not, not the right word i don't like but you know that's a, a early i mean mm -hmm. early 20s that's what you do you smoke weed you jerk off yeah, you watch yeah, tv yeah. and then you talk about it on the stand-up stage I, if that's what you do there's a lot of that yeah. for the young guys uh, a lot of talk about you know dating apps now the oh, young yeah. stand-ups seem to talk about that a I'm lot. I'm saying, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about no, dating but I mean, apps. You, but you know what young yeah. folks are up to, you know? But I'm disconnected from it, too, because when I was doing stand-up as a, as a youth, you know, it was a different world. Yeah. And now I've, I've seen some stand-up because a friend of mine, one of my best pals, uh, an actor you know, Nicholas Lee, his sort of stepdaughter, uh, Maddie Kelly, you know, he's uh, helped bring Maddie up for about 10 years of her life. Yeah. And... Um, Nick's happily in another relationship now with twin baby girls, which I is amazing. I know, it's amazing. But at the time, he was with uh, Sue Matthew and Maddie was, you know, their kid together. Yeah. Kinda, right? Um, so Maddie's doing stand-up, and Maddie claims that it was my idea that she do stand-up, and because she was always a very funny kid, and her parents and her stepdad, Nick, were so funny. Uh, so Maddie started doing stand-up and it turns out she's great at it and she's yeah. killing it and she has a following and she does a show called All You Can Eat Laundry at the Little Mountain Gallery. Okay. Yeah. And so she, she, we were just talking one night, I saw her over at Nick's and we decided, okay, I'm going to try, I'm going to get back up because I hadn't done stand-up for about 30 years. Were you scared? Um, you know, a lot of things scare me. Yeah. Uh, but. That isn't one of the scariest. I mean, there's a reason, though, you didn't do it for 30 years. So what was the reason that you stayed away for so long? Because I, I got into acting because I wanted to tell stories without having to yell and and 
hold on to an audience that's distracted or drinking. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of tough shows. I, I they call one nighters where if you're doing it in a comedy club, people are there to watch comedy, mm-hmm. and the staff has a certain degree of uh, control over the room. A certain degree. Yeah. There's kind of rules and regulations. When you do one-nighters, I remember as like a 23-year-old going to Whistler to some bar to do stand-up and to Chilliwack to a place called Earthquake Annie's. And, wow. you know, I had not... What so a visual there. Well, Earthquake me, Annie's in Chilliwack does not sound like a place I would want to go and tell some jokes. Somebody could do it. Kalamas yeah. could do it. He'd know how to reach them. You yeah. Know? But <laughs> I was, I had a, as you can imagine, probably a low-key kind of quiet act. And not only did they not laugh, but they actually don't listen, right? Mm. They just keep talking and playing pool and drinking and, and having a good time. And they just ignore you. Yeah. And that was brutal. Because you want to be seen. You want to be heard. You want to be acknowledged. Absolutely. And yeah. if I really wanted to learn to do what great stand-ups do, you have to learn to grab the room. You have yeah. to you know, get outside of your comfort zone if you have a certain style. If it's not going to work at Earthquake Annie's, you, you do something else. Yeah. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to... Uh, you know, I wanted to tell stories in a more focused way. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say that stand-up comics don't do that. Obviously, they do. And it's a hard-earned, you know, it's, it's years of work to, to earn that attention from the audience. Yeah. It's not something that's handed over to you easily. It's not the audience's fault. It's the performer who has to do it. Yeah. But I, I said, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to do a one-man show, and I'm going to tell funny stories, but I'm also going to tell other stories. And, you know, I, I had uh, it was better suited for me. Yeah. Um, but coming back at it 30 years later, I've had so much experience now talking to people, talking in a classroom, uh, talking at events, doing things like this, uh, promoting films, there's a, a level of comfort that I have now that I didn't have at all then. Yeah. Like going up and doing stand up then was like kind of walking on the moon. It was kind of like almost like when I said when our band played the Coliseum, you walk out and you're in a foreign world that you your feet barely touch the ground. Yeah. And you don't really know what's happening. And doing stand up was a bit like that then. Hmm. And now I just said I can go on I'm gonna stand in front of people and talk and if they don't laugh uh, I'll deal with it. Yeah. It'll be okay. Of course, it'll bruise the ego and could be a bit embarrassing, but I can deal with this. Yeah. So it was fun. You know, it was a packed house. Uh, lots of friends and students and stuff came out to support. And, and it was kind of like doing stand up at your own wedding or something, you know, like they were with me. Yeah. Um, I would like to try it sometime in a group of uh, strangers and see how it goes. And I'm going to do another show at Little Mountain Gallery in November with new material. Ah. So, yeah, I had to come up with all new material. The stuff I was doing in my 20s was not going to hold up in my 50s. Yeah. So in in your 20s, what was your what was your set like back I'm then? I'm a loser. I can't get a date. Yeah. Uh, and I don't like it. I don't like my life. Now my act is I'm a loser and I'm OK with my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now the act is acceptance. It's, this is who I and am. And you got a You got a date. I mean, you mentioned your wife and your in your act. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, um, you know, that's something I'll talk about at my next set. What a miracle that is uh, that I ended up with a woman like that. You know, for me, it's like, uh, you know, I my mean, act- I wasn't going to say anything, but she's super hot. She's super talented. She's brilliant. Yeah. And I'm a, like a pudgy 54 year old, five foot six neurotic Jew. You know, like, how did I what happened there? How did I get that? You f- you, she found her person, I and you so. found your person. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I'll talk about <laughs> talk about that stuff. And um, it's fun to just come up with things, get on stage and talk. Yeah. Right. Without that 
two-year script writing period or without going through notes and revisions. You just get up and you start trying and see where it lands. It keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that your whole life kind of keeps you on your toes, though, Ben, because there's so much that we're not talking about uh, because, you know, I mean, we are, we're not a five-hour podcast. We're a one-hour podcast. You know, we haven't talked a lot about your visual art. We haven't talked a lot about acting. You know, I mean, we've talked, there's directing, there's writing, there's the stand-up, there's the teaching. Like, how... How the hell are you code shifting all the time? Are you okay? I'm taking off this hat and I'm doing something else, or you know, how, like is or is it all just Ben? No, it's it's well, it is all you know. I I hope coming from from an authentic place. Yeah. But I mean, just this morning, my wife uh, said, I, I within moments of waking up, I I talked to her about four different ideas I had for different things, and she said, I can't. Yeah. Like, I just can't. I'm sorry. I know my brain doesn't work this way. Like, I do have a lot sort of careening around inside there. But that's part of the journey is figuring out. So what do you do with all this? You know, yeah. like with every as as you know, from the many hats you wear with every new creative pursuit you take on. It's not just about generating the work. It's about now what do we do with it? Mm. So if I want to put my paintings out to the public. So now I got to get a website. I got to uh, publicize that. <laughs> yeah. I got to get the gallery. I got to get the money. I got to be prepared to lose the money. You know, everything yeah. takes on another life. Stand up. It's like now am I going to go hustle? Am I going to try to get gigs? Am I going to be like talking to club owners? And am I going to be waiting to do seven minutes on an amateur night? Yeah. You know, you got to pick certain things and def who what truly divine define who you are. For me right now in my life, I'd say more than anything else in my heart and soul, it's teaching and it's my studio. Yeah. You know, I need to be creative. I need to uh, continue to write and I'll make another film or get one of these TV series off the ground. But my studio is home based. That's why one of the reasons it's called Haven. It's yeah. where I'm at my best and where I'm at my most useful and it's kind of through working with all those students it's really helped me be a better person and, and just kind of grow up you know the the way I need to conduct myself at that studio in order to to give the people what they deserve uh, if I can learn to live my whole life that way I know I'll be a, a better person and a happier person yeah um I, I do want to spend a bit of time talking about the studio because, I mean, that's come up in different episodes of this podcast as well. Uh, I, I'm curious about the, the students that, that come, that, that seek Haven at Haven, mm -hmm. seek sanctuary at Haven. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of, like, for the most part, what kind of experience do they want? Are they coming for careers? Are they coming because they've had careers and they want to change? Like, tell me about the t kind of, of people who come through your, come into your, your classroom and, and also the, the, the kind of advice that you give them about building careers, sustaining mm -hmm. uh, delicious careers mm -hmm. in this kind of unfair, mean-spirited, often, industry. Mm-hmm. Well, there's all kinds. Um, I've been teaching since uh, 95, 1995. My teacher, Ivana Chubbuck, who's an, mm. an author of a very well-known book, The Power of the Actor, and sort of a, an internationally recognized guru teacher, yeah. you know, huge following and teaches all over the world. Excellent teacher, big influence on me. My, my, one of my mentors, she got me started, and um, I always kind of felt somewhere that I was going to be a teacher. I remember sitting in the 10th grade, grade 10, having to write this little 
essay on what what are we going to do yeah. with our lives and i was going what am i going to do like i knew i was i pretended i was going to be a boxer and i did reach a certain degree of success i guess as a boxer but you know i was a well overfed kid from kitsilano you don't become a professional boxer it's just not in the cards you know <laughs> you have to come from a hard place yeah and i thought well maybe i can be a teacher and i just sort of imagined myself connecting with people in the way that my teacher, Mr. Robbins, did with me, yeah. you know? Um, but it just didn't seem cool enough. It didn't seem like enough. I wanted to do something cooler and more exciting than that, you know? But I, I felt it. I felt the stirrings of that. Once Havana got me started, I just did it forever. I did it uh, in Vancouver, and then I did it uh, when I moved to L.A. I actually ended up teaching acting classes at the Wild Card Boxing Club, which is a, okay. you know, Freddie Roach's is the trainer of Manny Pacquiao and sorry you taught you taught acting yeah so I used to go to the gym all the time and like every day you know as actors do as young actors do you're kind of very focused on yourself and your body and you know um, you just have a, a simpler life you go to the gym you do your auditions you hang out with your pals and that's it that's life it's yeah. a very simple life you go to acting class hopefully um, and uh, so I was in the gym every day and Freddie found out that I was an acting teacher or an actor and then we were talking and he said, you know, you can use the gym at night if you want. Like there's no one here. Like Freddie's another guy who just treats everyone the same. If you're, you know, world champion or if you're a guy like me just, you know, th throwing it around, Freddie will treat you with respect. So I ended up teaching acting at night in the wildcard gym in the actual boxing ring. Whoa. It was pretty crazy. I forgot all about that. What I mean, does that do to to be acting in a in a ring? Like, does that change the state? Especially for somebody who had spent time, you know, mm -hmm. knocking people out or getting knocked out in yeah. rings. Does that change? It <laughs> like was at first it's kind of like amusing and, and ironic. And, you know, the metaphor is so obvious that it's you just can't help but kind of laugh at it. But yeah. we, got, we got over that pretty quickly. Yeah. Boxing and acting have a lot in common. Yeah. You know, it's like for for a boxing coach, I know Josh Cameron was recently talking to me about you can be a one dimensional fighter or a three dimensional fighter. You can be a fighter who can be effective offensively. That's one dimension. To be effective defensively, slipping punches, another dimension. To be able to really move and have effective footwork, that's another dimension. A three-dimensional fighter is a very special thing. Yeah. That's a champion. Same with actors. Yeah. You know, I kind of try to break it down into, there's so many ways of describing acting, and to me, none of them are truly effective unless you're in the classroom witnessing it. But... In trying to break it down, I'd say concentration, or rather, um, rather comprehension, which is funny because I'm talking about comprehension and I use the wrong word, <laughs> but they're connected. Comprehension, clarity, and commitment. That would be a three-dimensional actor for me. Comprehension being, do you know what you're talking about? Do you understand the story? Do you understand the time and the place, the history Who's the writer? What's their history? What stories do they tell? What themes do they write about? The point of the play. Do you truly understand the play? Or are you doing what a lot of actors do? You read it once, highlight your character's lines, and just focus on that. Comprehension is so important. Understand what you're talking about. When you interview people for your podcast, you know them, you research them, and then you feel confident, right? Because yeah. you're not going to get caught. 
you don't want to get caught as an actor, especially as a teacher or director. You don't want to get asked a question you don't know the answer to. Yeah. That's the most dangerous thing that can happen to a teacher is somebody goes, well, what about, you know, scene 14 when this happened? If you don't know, you're useless as a teacher at that point. You have to know the play. Comprehension is one dimension. Another dimension is clarity. Mm -hmm. Do you have the tools? Do you have the tools? Are you on your voice, on your breath, in your body? Can you stand and deliver? Can yeah. you be present? If you, no matter how well you understand the play, if you can't transmit it through your instrument and through your craft, you're going to be a second-rate actor. Yeah. You know? And then finally, commitment. How far are you willing to go? Are you going to do the work? Are you going to out-hustle everyone? Are you going to give of yourself? Are you going to dig into yourself in ways that you never have before? Are you going to take risks and, and learn and reveal things about yourself? That's the commitment. So those are sort of the three dimensions. And that's, you know, what we focus on at, at Haven is is all those aspects. There's no, sh we don't believe that there's any shortcuts. Yeah. Well, what about, what about another C, which is career? Mm -hmm. do, do people who come to class, do they succeed if they have an idea of the kind of career they want, the kind of work they want to do? Or does that muddy things? in it, some way well it's you know there's there's value in that and i often refer people to a friend of mine barbara deutsch who's yes. a career coach who's great i love her i've known her since 95 as well that's what she focuses on i end up answering a lot of questions and offering guidance and in some cases trying to help people get an agent if they're uh, showing that their work ethic is deserving of that you know actors talk about passion i'm so passionate about acting your passion and your work ethic is the same thing. Yeah. You know, as a professional, as an amateur or an enthusiast, you can be very passionate and you just, your enjoyment is as an audience member. As a professional artist, they're the same. So if people are doing that, if we see that in their behavior, their conduct, I'll always try to help people, absolutely. But to answer your question of what kind of actors, as you know, there's a lot of studios in Vancouver and we're in a climate where everybody's hustling and promoting. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, you yourself were a hustler. You've described yourself as that, like that you've been doing that for your whole, your whole career. I am, right? and I'm tired of it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm tired of it. I just want to do what I do. But um, I try to let the studio speak for itself. I try to let the actors speak for the studio. I'm not one to go out and say I am Vancouver's premier studio, top studio. Um, I just say this is what's going on and what's going on at Haven is a great many of the top working actors in the city come to Haven for ongoing training yeah. and just to keep sharp and to play and to like to a boxing ring like going and training in the ring a lot yeah. of those students are teachers themselves I think there's about 10 or 12 people who teach acting professionally in Vancouver who come to Haven to work with me because they're just you know it's ongoing and it's passing things down I've had great teachers like uh, Vonnie Chubbuck and Larry Moss and more recently Patsy Rodenberg have been a huge influence on me so we're all just kind of passing down the knowledge yeah. and if you can find someone who speaks to you on a personal level a place where you feel safe and connected then that'll be a good teacher for you. Yeah. We also have a, a ton of up-and-coming actors, newer actors and developing actors, and it's so joyful to watch them. You know, I'm not focused on career. Yeah. Uh, career is, is what happens when you find empowerment. Mm. You know, I can't really tell them how to have a career, but I can work with them to find personal empowerment and confidence 
and genuine passion, and that will often translate into a career. My, one of my teachers in Vancouver was Mel Tuck, who's yeah. still out there working, and Mel doesn't get enough. Uh, his, his name isn't thrown around enough, as much as he deserves. Yeah. Mel's original class that I was in, out of that group, there's a lot of people whose names you'd know who went on to become not only uh, successful career actors, but teachers. Yeah. Um, and one of the ironies of this is is a lot of those teachers have sort of surpassed Mel in their popularity yeah. because of evolution, you know, and, and Mel deserves a lot of respect. He's mm -hmm. a very, very special teacher, very influential. So in that same way that out of that group, so many actors had careers, I look at when I started my own studio, um, I'm just to name, I mean, I'm just thinking the actors who were there on an ongoing basis, I've certainly watched them surpass me in their acting careers, yeah. you know, like I've just watched their focus. And as I've sort of as my uh, interests and my focus has sort of stayed more within the studio and creating content, you know, Ryan Robbins, Ali oh. Liebert and Jeff Gustafson, uh, Maddie Finocchio. Uh, God, I just, I don't want to leave names out, but I look at that original group that studied with me and they've gone on and had serious careers as performers. So yeah. I'm, I'm really proud of that. I'm really glad to have, to know. And, and now there's just so many actors in class who are working all the time. And I'm really proud that, you know, they've called Haven their home yeah. and it's the doors are open to newer people. And I have, I'm so lucky now I have Brian Markinson teaching yes. there. Yes. And we Brian's, love Brian here. <laughs> Brian's a big shot, you know. Brian yeah. is is like he swam in the pond with those big fish, and he knows his stuff. And Nelson Wong is teaching auditioning and more career type stuff that goes along with auditioning. And Nelson's all heart, all soul, massively accomplished actor himself. Yeah. So we have a good group. We miss Loretta. I know yeah. you talked to Loretta. And Loretta's on hiatus, so she can focus on her family and her own acting career for a while. But Loretta is a really important part of it. So yeah, uh, Haven's definitely my home base and and no matter what kind of day I have if I have a shitty day or I'm feeling down about life or about career or about whatever I go in that place and as soon as I walk in and sit down on my chair the world's all right yeah you know, there's something to for us to focus on together a journey to take over those five hours yeah um, I, I would love to spend a little bit more time talking about you as an actor as well because I don't feel like we've I mean, we've been talking for more than an hour. We haven't really gone into mm. gone into it. I know that I uh, recently saw you on stage. I mean, recently, I guess it was in the last, last year. year. It was play, in the yeah. play This. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the first time I'd seen you on stage in, in quite some time. Uh, and I know that you did have that arc on uh, Travelers as mm. well. And there was Man in the High Castle. Mm. Like, what 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 are the roles that you really love to sink your, your teeth into? Well... I, I still love acting. I yeah. do enjoy it. I do enjoy the craft. Um, I, you know, part of being a professional actor, a huge part, 80% of it is auditioning. Yeah. Right? And it's memorizing lines. That's what you do as a professional. You sit down maybe every night for many hours a night and you memorize lines so you can go in and audition effectively. Yeah. I'm not prepared to do that anymore. I've mm. been doing this too long. And I have too many other interests and life is too short. And I have absolute respect for people like Jen, my wife, who sits down on that couch every night and learns that stuff until she's ready to go. All my friends and students, I'm not certainly not above it. I just say we have to make choices in life yeah. about what we're going to do with our time while we're here. 
And, you know, to remember six pages of exposition overnight, I'm not kidding when I say I don't remember where I parked my car. Right. When I, I don't know where my car is right now. When I came here to see you, it's somewhere down in that parking lot. I don't know where. So to remember. We'll si- send somebody down yeah. with you to help you to help you find it, though. But, you know, but an audition, though, is is a it's a job interview. So if you're not auditioning. Right. So that means. So once in a while I go, if yeah. I see a part uh, or a person that I want to work with. Then I'll go, okay, I'm going to do it tonight. I'm yeah. going to like stay up all night and just learn this stuff. So, you know, doing Travelers, I wanted to work with Eric yeah. McCormick and I wanted to be on the show with Jen. And I put the time in and uh, I know Eric was gunning for me and of course that helps, you know. Um, A little bit. And when we say Eric, we're talking about Eric McCormick. Yeah. So yeah. I wanted to work with him and I, I wanted to be on that show with those people. Brad Wright is an excellent person and he's the showrunner creator. I'm going to try. I'm going to go do it. Wonder the film with Julia Roberts and, and uh, uh, what's the kid's name? Jacob Tremblay. Jacob Tremblay. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, great kid. What an actor. Um, Wonder was, uh, I think... It, Nicole described it. Nicole Oliver yeah. described it as like the world's first kindness-themed blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, just incredible. Yeah, I was surprised how well it did. Not because it wasn't a good script, but because you just don't think that that kind of stuff is going to translate. Yeah. Um, so certain films, you know, stand out, and you go, "I'm going to really try for this." Other ones, now I just say, you know, there's lots of guys who can do this, and I don't want to spend all night or several days learning this exposition about you know the magical bracelet that you put on your wrist that transports you to another dimension I just don't want to do it and that's not to say that other people shouldn't do it and shouldn't love it right I just want to do other things with my time yeah so I just choose very carefully and like doing Ganji was me saying I want to act and I think I'm a good actor when I really try hard and I'm going to invest in it and I came up with something that you know had meaning to me um, doing plays is the best because yeah. you don't you have time, you know you don't have to learn it overnight. I love learning lines for a play because I know yeah. I'm going to do it. So you know I, I love acting and I always want to keep doing it and I don't want to scare away people from hiring me as an yeah. actor <laughs> by sounding like I'm above <laughs> it. But I want to be real with you and that you know acting is a, is a serious job. You can't sort of do it on the side. And one of the myths of I had a student recently say to me. You know, I like having you as a teacher because you're a working actor. And I say, oh, well, well, thank you. You know, I work sometimes and I, I certainly did for 25 years. It was like my full time job, you know. Yeah. Um, but I say, you know, my teachers, uh, Ivana, Larry Moss, Patsy Rodenberg, they're not working actors. Uh, they did briefly. You know, Larry had a bit of a stage career. Ivana, I don't know. She says she she acted. I don't see any credits on IMDb. Patsy Rodenberg certainly wasn't an actor. She's a teacher. Um, So, you know, going to an acting teacher who has experience acting, of course they're going to bring a certain understanding to things. But it's also kind of like, you know, saying um, you're going to be a good mechanic because you're an Uber driver. It's just like, Hmm. yeah, but like it's not the same thing. Yeah. You know, like being an actor isn't the same as being a teacher. Yeah. The investment of being a, a teacher is, is very different than the investment of being an actor. Being an actor is, for the most part, a solitary, self-focused endeavor yeah. until you're on set. As a teacher, it's all about collaboration, communication, right? So, yes, I, I hope to continue it. To answer your question, I love playing parts. Uh, I love Dustin Hoffman when I was a kid. Mm. The Graduate 
Midnight Cowboy. Those were huge films for me. Yeah. And I loved seeing sort of that little guy tough it out. I love seeing the the loser overcome circumstances to become heroic yeah. with humor, vulnerability. Those are the kind of roles I like. Uh, I used to play for some reason in my 30s kind of tough guys and like gangsters and stuff, which could be kind of fun. Um, and now I'm at an age where it's, you know, you kind of get called in for doctors, um, uh, scientists, those kind of things. Uh, it's mostly exposition. Yeah. It's not as much fun. I want to tell stories about people connecting, people struggling, yeah. not, uh, you know, explaining devices and things. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's always there's good in all that stuff and there's challenges in all that stuff. And again, not to underestimate the skills it takes to do it. I just have so many interests and, and so many uh, desires that to spend night after night learning lines where there's maybe a one in 30 or 40 or 50 chance you're going to end up saying them. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to play those odds on a regular basis. I'll yeah. leave that to my wife. She's the full-time actor in the house and is doing very well. Yeah, she's doing okay. You're doing great. She's doing okay. Yeah. No, we're big, big fans of Jennifer Spence here at the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Before we let you go today, uh, I would love to do a little bit of time travel. Uh, so you can get into the DeLorean. Do we're I have to memorize the lines about time travel? Uh, yeah, we sent them to you Did last I? night. Oh, shit, I no. <laughs> no, I want to go. I wanna stuck go. in the fax machine. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to, well, actually, you, you've given me the the time period. We're going to go back to, uh, we're going to go to your house in Kitsilano. Uh, you're nine years old. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's evening. You've just gotten back from open learning school. And uh, you have two minutes to give yourself some advice. That will that will equip you with, with some kind of maybe an advantage for the the decades to come. Mm -hmm. What do no. you say, or do you just stare at the house <laughs> and don't knock the door? Don't knock on the door. Well, I have a long answer and a quick answer. Which one should we do? I like the long answer. When I was making Downriver, uh, when I was writing it, I was in Spain with my wife and her parents in a little town called Javia, and. Uh, we were staying together in a condo and I, I was I had to get this script written and what I do is get up really early in the morning when it was still dark and go down to this cafe about a couple of mile walk away and sit and write down river and it helped me sort of just find some space on my own. So it was very motivating, right, to get out of bed and start work because I needed my own space to write. Yeah. Also, the walk down there was very meditative. And being, you know, in surrounded by was it a sleepy, sleepy town at that point? In it was the a beautiful morning? little sleepy town, yeah. um, very kind of special, gentle, ancient place. And uh, so I'd sit in this cafe and write, and things were going pretty well. I was getting a lot done, uh, but I was trying to figure out the beginning and the end of the film. Uh, I had basic ideas, but I really needed a clear bookend. One day this woman comes in and I hear her speaking in Spanish, very powerful kind of charismatic presence. And I see this woman and she's going off about something in Spanish. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like somehow I know this person. And then she comes over to me and starts asking me questions with an English accent. And she's not Spanish. She's actually a Brit who lives in Spain and is teaching English. Hmm. And she's very uh, 
forthright about just wanting to know who I am, what I'm doing, what kind of computer that is, how does it work, what are you writing? And she just won't stop. And she kind of gets her ass in the chair and sits down. And, and next thing you know, we're talking for about an hour. She's telling me all about herself. She says, you must come see where I live. You must come. And I'm, again, sort of an introvert. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't know if I want, but something tells me, just say yes. So yeah. I go, okay, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I'm going to, I'll meet you here tomorrow morning. I'm going to bring my wife and we'll come, come see you. So we meet her. She marches us. And this woman's like sort of in her probably late 50s very sort of charismatic you know big personality uh she marches us down the street to her apartment we go up this flight of creaky stairs and we walk into this apartment that reminds me right away of bab's apartment hmm. bab's chula's apartment which was just packed with art and candles and ashtrays and food and exotic rugs and pillows and thousands of photos it seemed and also in this woman's case her her I think 100-year-old father who was sitting there deaf and blind eating Marmite on toast, sipping tea. And she tells us more. She's telling us everything. She was Laurence Olivier as her cousin. Uh, I'm just getting these feelings while I'm there. And I say to Jen, when this woman, her name is Nancy, she leaves the room for a moment. I say to Jen, I'm feeling the presence of Babs. You know, I don't know why. I just feel like Babs is here or something. And Jen goes, well, you should tell her. And I go, I don't know. I, I just, okay. So Nancy comes back out and I say, I have to tell you something. I know we just met, but I have a friend who passed away not that long ago. And I feel like she's here. I just, I, I just feel a really strong sense of, of her presence. And I, I just felt like I wanted, I needed to tell you that. And she gives me a hug, Nancy, and she goes, let it out, let it out. She goes, go ahead, it's all right to cry. She tells me she's bipolar. Meeting us has been the greatest thing that's happened to her in months. She's so happy that we met. So now we're all connected. Something's warm and fuzzy. Hmm. Before we leave her place, she says, uh, you live in Canada, right? And I say, yes. Uh, she goes, where do you live? I go, uh, Vancouver, a place called Vancouver. And she goes, oh, well, perhaps you could do something for me. Um, I have a cousin who's in a hospice in Vancouver. Perhaps you could deliver something for me. I say, um, okay. So she gives me this package and she says it's a scarf. And I didn't check the package. You know, maybe I should have. It could have been a bomb or drugs or yeah. something. But I just thought, <laughs> okay, no problem. So she, there's an address written on the package and she asked me to deliver this to her, her cousin, Sylvia, who's in a hospice in Vancouver. We get back to Vancouver. Uh, I figure, this woman's got cancer. I better get on it. I put the address in my GPS. It brings me directly to the hospice Babs was in. <gasps> yeah, it's the place that Babs was in before she went home for her final days. And, you know, I spent quite a bit of time there with Babs, and I knew this place so well, so I was floored, right? Yeah. And I got that feeling. I got that this is all happening for a reason feeling. So I go in with the package to deliver it. And as I go up the elevator, the elevator doors open. And the first thing I hear is, come on, Benny. Come on, Benny. Come on, Benny. You can do it. Come on, Benny. And that's me. I'm Benny. And Babs was one of the people who called me Benny. Her last words to me were, thanks, Benny. Right? Wow. So... Perhaps it's like, that's me. I'm Benny. What's going on? I walk in and there's this little old man in a wheelchair and he's trying to get out of the wheelchair and he's smiling and the nurses are going, come on, Benny, 
come on, Benny, right? You can do it. And he gets up out of the wheelchair and he, I remember he was like pretending he was riding a motorcycle. He was going like, vroom, vroom, and moving his hands like they're on a motorcycle on the throttle, you know? Mm. And he gets up and they all kind of have a laugh and a hug. I go, God damn, like that's me. And that's Babs talking to me. And the lesson is, and this is what Downriver was about, is yeah, you're going to die. We're all going to die, but you're going to be okay. You got people who love you. Live your life. Don't live in fear. Don't hold back. Get out there while you can. You're going to You're going to be okay. Just get out and live. So, I learned that in 2000 and 12 or something when I was writing the script and I really felt it and that's what that film was about and that's what you know I've come to see that life is about if I had known that as a kid in my teenage years in my 20s and 30s and even in my early 40s I would have avoided a lot of fear yeah I would have avoided a lot of uh, anger I could have avoided a lot of blame uh, a lot of inner critic outer judge all that stuff just get out and live your life. You're going to die. Don't don't try to avoid that because you can't. But you're going to be okay. That's the long answer. The short answer is I wish I didn't eat those clams in Montreal in uh, 1998. <laughs> you know, if I could go back, I, I wouldn't have taken the waiter's recommendation for those clams. Yeah. It was a big mistake. And never I, I eat clams it. in Montreal. Yeah. Wow. Benjamin Ratner. Thank you so much for visiting us in the YBR Screen Scene My studio pleasure. today. I, I, I feel like I, I really talked your ear off, but I, I guess uh, you create an atmosphere that, that makes uh, your, your, your interview partner uh, let it all hang out. Yeah, I mean, well, we did create this place to feel like a, a therapy room, but in this case, I feel like the, I'm the one who... I, 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 you gave me what I needed to hear today, so... Thank you very much. Glad to hear it. Um, where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, I'm so bad at social media, but let's see if I can remember. Uh, <laughs> I know there's at Haven Studio Acting for the studio. Yeah. Uh, I've just started my own Instagram thing where I'm just showing paintings for fun at Benjamin Ratner. Yeah, okay. Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, Scene Study with Benjamin Ratner. And we have a Twitter thing, which is at Haven Studio. I feel like it's like Haven underscore Studio. Haven underscore Studio. We'll, we'll put links to all of this uh, yeah, in, Google, our, in Google. our footnotes. Start with Google. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for acting classes, uh, BenjaminRatner.com. And people can find information about that stuff there. So, yeah, it's out there. Uh, if people want to find it, I guess they will. Yeah. And... Uh, you will promote your your next time on the stand-up stage, right? That'll be yeah. that'll be coming up because I'm we're going to be releasing this before your next uh, your next stand-up gig. So if they if they want to come and see you, they should keep always, an eye on social media. Then always a good show at All You Can Eat Laundry. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I have a lot of emotions that I'm going to go and deal with right now. But to my listeners, I thank you for listening, for joining us today. Please like and subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. They help new listeners find us. You can find us at www. I'm going podcast voice now. www.yvrscreenscene.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR Screen Scene. 
The YVR Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by myself, Sabrina Furminger, and it is produced and edited by Simon Furminger. We give special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Furminger, it's a lot of Furmingers, for our technical support, and to Dane Devillet for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut!